1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray.
2: Well, hello, welcome. I appreciate your being with us once again here on All Rise the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Uh, It's no secret this is Judge Jim Gray, but it's just really nice to have you with us. We have people listening actually from all around the world. Libertarian values really are impressive and they work. And people around the world are starting to notice a great deal more. We even have numbers of of listeners from China, from Ireland, uh, various places in Europe, uh, as well as just... uh, Including Costa Rica, which is where I was in the Peace Corps. But today we're going to have back another guest. Uh, he will be one of our few repeat guests. And actually, uh, quite a bit has happened since we interviewed him, Nick Sarwark, uh, before this was broadcast on August the 9th of 2019. But Nick is someone I would call a libertarian in action. Uh, he has done a great deal in his uh, years so far. He's a lot younger than I am. But uh, he is just finished up his two years as the chair of the National Republican, goodness sakes, National Libertarian Party. Don't mean to swear in your presence, Nick. Uh, He (laughs) ran for the mayor of Phoenix. He has now moved his family from Arizona to New Hampshire. I think he's part of the Free State Project there, but we'll get into that a little bit. Certainly interesting developments. And he's now running for county attorney, in uh, in uh, New Hampshire, so in fact, uh, I can tell you, Nick, that that's already cost me a little bit of money. But but good for you. But Nick Sarwark, S-A-R-W-A-R-K, welcome back. Thank you for being here with us on All Rise, and uh, and welcome. Thank you so much
3: for having me back on, Jim. It's been uh, too long. We should talk more often.
2: Well, we can we can do that too. But uh, Nick, you're an interesting fellow. Uh, I. I will probably label this segment a uh, libertarian in action. Uh, you don't just sit back and let the world happen. Uh, you're a former public defender, I understand. Uh, just fill us in a little bit about your background. Uh, tell us, tell us, who is Nick
3: Sarwark? Yeah, so uh, I have been a libertarian uh, for most of my life. I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, and my father took me to libertarian meetings in Phoenix, uh, where I grew up, and it made sense to me uh, that's the right way to be, where you let other people live their lives the way they want, as long as they don't hurt people and they don't take their stuff. Uh, Professionally, I have a background in computer science, and then after a career in that, went to law school, Uh, Became a public defender south of Denver in Colorado and then um, spent five years uh, in 2014. We moved down to Phoenix, uh, where I operated our family business, car dealership and loan company, and uh, also ran for mayor of Phoenix, forcing a runoff election in 2018, uh, getting a little over 10.5% of the vote, um, even being outspent 10 to 1 by the current mayor of Phoenix. And so we decided in 20, uh, it would have been probably like summer of 2019, decided that for our family, it would be better to live on the East Coast, uh, closer to my wife's family and some of our relatives there, and settled in on New Hampshire as a good place that's safe and prosperous, close to things on the East Coast, but Uh, Quiet enough that it's a good place to raise a family.
2: Indeed. And, well, you you are a family man. Uh, You have children. Uh, Tell us about them. Brag a little bit.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So we have four children, uh, Ruth, Joel, Ava, and Zane. And they are nine, eight, five, and two. Just getting back into school, uh, some of the schools here, some of the charter schools are back to in-person schooling. And so we're getting into that rhythm. And uh, as you mentioned a little earlier, I decided to throw my hat in the ring for county attorney here in Hillsborough County, which is southern New Hampshire, basically from Nashua up to Manchester, it's the most populous county in New Hampshire. And it was just a good opportunity to apply some of the skills and experience that I've developed over my career to serve the community that we've chosen to build a life in.
2: Nick, sometimes I will go up to a young family, like in a restaurant where I see them, and they're having a good time. They're they're obviously good parents. And I will say, I know I'm intruding, but my baby daughter is now 44 years old. Enjoy them every step of the way. Enjoy them while you have them. Uh, and uh, that's what I'm reminding you—I know I don't have to—but it's the most fascinating thing I think in the world of many miracles in the world to see the development of a newborn for the first year and then thereafter. So, so good for you. Uh, I, I'm just—I'm proud of you. But I'm sure that your, your no, children are you. just just having having a a great great uh, great childhood. I tell people that the best decision I ever made in my life was choosing my parents, and I'll bet that your four children could say the same thing.
3: Probably could. You know, one of the things that that I uh, read a few months back that stuck with me is there's one question that every parent should always answer yes to, and it's when uh, when your child comes up to you and says, will you play with me or will you read to me, that really there's not much else in life that would be more important than that opportunity to bond with your child. And, you know, that time never comes back. Uh, We have the time that we have and that's all that we get. So it's, it's definitely important to cherish it.
2: I was a judge in juvenile court on the abused and neglected children calendar, which was sometimes a very difficult situation. And sometimes I'd have to take children away from the custody of their parents, or at least oversee it. And many times I would order the custodian, the parent or the, the custodian of the child, I would give them My favorite child's book, which is Fox in Socks by Dr. Seuss, lots of silliness, rhyming, that sort of thing. I'd give them a copy, and then I would order them to have the child sit on their lap and read to the child. And uh, depending on the age of the child, you read one page, the child will read another. But I fully subscribe to what you said. It's just one of the great things my father did. He was a federal judge, uh, very distinguished, but he'd always get down on the floor and play with young children, that sort of thing. It's just, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. But okay, let's get a little more back to business, although we couldn't talk about anything more important than what we've been discussing the last couple of minutes. But you became a libertarian young in life, t- you say 10 or 12. You sure beat me by a number of years, but but. What, what difference does it make? What, why is the libertarian philosophy uh, different than any of, of the other political philosophies in your view, Nick Sarwark?
3: You know, I think the, the biggest differentiator between libertarianism as a political philosophy and any of the other political philosophies is most of them are about who gets to be in charge of other people, who gets to control your life. Who gets to tell you what you you can and can't do? Who sets the rules for how you are allowed to pursue your own happiness? And libertarianism is fundamentally different in that it's focused on empowering people. It's focused on maximizing the number of areas in which you control your own life, you control your own destiny, you have the space to build whatever kind of happiness is most meaningful to you. And that may be very different from my vision of what would be a good life or a fulfilling life. But as long as I'm peaceful and you're peaceful, we allow each other the space to grow in our own way. And it makes for a much better society. I mean, it, it has the potential to reduce the violence, reduce the coercion, reduce a lot of the negativity that we see in our culture today, which comes from that struggle between competing political philosophies that are not libertarian, fighting over who does get to control your life, who does get to set the rules, who gets to take how much of your money and give it to their political cronies and friends, and how much of it are you going to be allowed to keep? And that discussion and the... The premise that the government should be in control of your life and only give you back such freedom as they see fit to give is the thing that libertarians reject, and we believe that there's a better way to do politics, and we've been at it for 50 years as an organized political party, and it's nothing but growth that I'm seeing as far as the eye can see as this next generation realizes that we can't solve modern problems with the philosophy that got us into them.
2: Nick Sarwark, you make it really fun for me to be the host of this show because, you know, it's really interesting. I've asked that question numbers of times. You are the most articulate in your response to that that I've really ever heard. You're a lot more articulate than I am in my response had you asked me that. So so good for you. I I define it... uh, that the libertarians really are the only political party in the United States today that's in the mainstream of American political thought, that most people would agree with with what you just said. Oh, that's me. That, I, I believe that's me too. We've just allowed other people to label us, uh, and we've made a mistake by doing that. But I think that we are the only mainstream party. Then I quote Thomas Jefferson, I've done it numbers of times here on All Rise, that he says, I don't care if you worship one God, 20 gods, or no God, it doesn't pick my pocket, and it doesn't break my leg. Live and let live. And that's that's what you said. I think Thomas did a pretty good job of defining it as well. But you'll remember this. Uh, I ran with Larry Sharp. Uh, I ran for the Libertarian nomination for president. Larry Sharp from New York was running as my running mate. And uh, I got into some trouble with the Libertarians. I wanted to make sure that they knew my thoughts before I was nominated. And so uh, I did make the comment that I don't, if I were bleeding, right there on the street, right below you, Nick Sarwark, Uh, you would have no Mm -hmm. legal obligation to help me unless you caused my injuries, that would be different. But we're a compassionate people, we will because we want to. But you're not entitled, or I wouldn't be entitled, it's just that uh, people would be compassionate. So I said that I would put in a safety net, Uh, basically it's uh, Milton Friedman, so I think I'm on solid ground there, but below which a a level People would not be allowed to fall. They would be given a negative income tax, given a stipend each month if they made no money. And I got into a little difficulty with that. Whether it cost me the nomination, I don't know, but I had to be forthright. What is your thought with regard to that? Uh, I think, again, Milton Friedman's good citation, but but. What do you think, how would that fit into a libertarian philosophy, Uh, then do away with all other welfare and just allow people to live their lives uh, with an incentive always to earn the extra dollar?
3: Yeah, I think what you've touched on is that, you know, libertarianism as a political philosophy is not a complete way to live your life. Uh, it defines more what you're, you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to take from other people in order to accomplish things. You have to do things voluntarily, and you're not allowed to control other people. But it doesn't tell you so much about what the positive things that you ought to do with your life are. And that requires looking a little bit more at who we are as people and what people are like in a community. And it's not just Friedman, but if you go back to von Mises or Hayek, they all talk about this concept of having a safety net, having a community that looks out for the least of these those who, by accident of birth or through trauma or tragedy or misfortune, they draw the short straw. They end up in a situation that they're not able to handle themselves. And it defines us, I think, as people how we react to that, whether or not we are compassionate and caring. And I think we need to focus back on what we share as people and not so much look at where we have conflict. And what we share as people is a goal for those who are in a situation that may not be, you know, their own fault. It may be their fault, but they're in a tragic situation I think we all share the goal of wanting them to have a better life, to be able to have shelter and food and medical care. We want that goal. And we need to look at what is the best and most efficient way to accomplish that goal with the least amount of force or coercion or taxation. What's the best way to accomplish what we want to accomplish together? And I think if we focus on that, we can bring down the the rancor in in our politics, and just focus on what we're trying to do well. And that is where you get to this question of, should we have this patchwork of social safety net systems that we have with forms and bureaucrats and overhead, and it's just not an efficient system? You know, a good first step would be to make the system that is currently provisioned by the government more efficient and more respectful to those people who are in it, where they don't have to jump through hoops and go fill out forms and explain to a bureaucrat why they should get help.
2: And our current welfare system strongly encourages young unwed women to have children, encourages the father of the children not to live with them. It encourages you to bid on welfare and not get a job. I mean, all of these incentives are counter to what a society should want but i i have done something nick i'm going to ask you publicly uh, a favor uh, i have okay. done the best i could and i've written what i call one man's libertarian white paper and it talks about what libertarian philosophy is, citing various people, including Friedman and Jefferson and the rest, uh, and then who would be the winners and who would be the losers in a libertarian society. Uh, the losers, for example, would be teachers who can't teach, uh, the winners would be children who are in failing schools today. They, could, they would have school choice and competition. But I'm going to ask you, please, as a favor to all of us, to write an article Uh, One Man's Libertarian White Paper, whatever you want to call it, because you're so articulate. You answered now two questions better than I did. And uh, would you agree publicly to uh, put pen to paper after your— your uh, election is over. I'm not going to get into uh, into that as far as county attorney. And if you win, I'll, I may have to defer it until after your your uh, term is over. But would you give consideration, please, to putting pen to paper or whatever we do in today's world and writing such a, an article? I think it would be a real contribution.
3: I will be happy to commit to, to that publicly. And, um, you know, it's always good to, the only way to get better at writing is to do more writing. Uh, there's. A million other shortcuts, but um, that's the one that I need to do more of. And so I appreciate you challenging me to do it. And, you know, I, I think one of the things we have to remember when we talk to each other as libertarians, and then we talk to people who are not libertarian yet, is we all have a different vision of the world and different values and different backgrounds that we come from. And there was a, somebody asked, a candidate once asked, a former libertarian person you know, I have this position, and I'm I'm worried if it's, if it's really a libertarian position. And the chairman looks at him and says, you know, you're a libertarian. You're running as a libertarian, right? He said, yeah, I'm running as a libertarian. He said, and it's your position, this position you have. He said, yeah, it's my position. He said, well, then it sounds like it's a libertarian position. It may not be every libertarian's position, but it's certainly yours, and you're a libertarian. And, you know, I think we just need to be a little more gracious with each other, in realizing that we can have different visions, even within, you know, this broad ambit of libertarianism, and all of those visions, even when they have conflict inside our party or our movement, are still superior to the other political philosophies that are available.
2: They, they, they truly are, uh, and they are what our country in today's climate truly needs. We we need to unify. And by the way. Uh, under my example with regard to the safety net, and, and you discussed it as well, um, it, people are not entitled. Uh, just because I'm alive does not mean you owe me anything. But because we're compassionate people, we will provide for the, the, those that have gone short straw, like you say. Maybe they'll be appreciative. If you get into the entitlements, you can always give me more. Oh, no, you have all of this. and this, private the private sector is evil and you know all that sort of stuff you can always owe me more you can always give me more it will never be enough which is not a healthy position to be in but you just completed two years as the chair of the National Libertarian Party, elected office, by the way. I'm really high on what you did. I'm complimentary, and I've done that privately with numbers of people. I didn't have much resistance in that either. But tell us some of the high points that you uh, experienced and some of the low points that you experienced as the chair of the National Libertarian Party. Nick Sarwark?
3: You know, one of the things that I think was uh, a great honor in my tenure as chair, is I was lucky enough to be elected three times to the position. And so I had the experience of being chairman during the 2016 presidential run and being chairman in the run-up to the 2020 election. And it gave me the, the perspective to be able to see some of the ballot access challenges that were we were going to face to see some of the legal and litigation avenues that would be available to us and really apply some continuity from that previous experience so that in 2020 uh, and following the plan that we laid out, you know, years in advance, we have once again achieved 50 state plus District of Columbia ballot access for the Libertarian Party, two election cycles in a row, which is something that it's very seldom been done in American history, especially not by a political party that doesn't start with D or R. And that was, that's probably a high point. Uh, we're also within, you know, maybe twenty or $30,000 of having our national headquarters completely paid off well in advance of the balloon payment due to some, you know, really getting some people to step up and give to support that long term mission of the party and you know, just being frugal with members' resources and, and showing that we can do more with the money that we're entrusted with than the two old parties that are more inefficient and top heavy. You know, I think the low points are a lot of the the internal fighting that occurs around nomination season. I, I know you probably saw some of it. In seeking the presidential nomination, people get very bitter and angry and a little silly, I think, as we get closer to convention, where they feel like, you know, chickens are going to come home to roost or scores are going to be settled. And it's not it's not the most fun of the job, but you do your best and you just try and realize that everyone who shows up at a national convention or gives money to the Libertarian Party or steps up publicly and says that they're a Libertarian, we're all in this together and we're all trying for the same goal. And you know, just try and be gracious and have good humor about it.
2: Well, Nick, first of all, I, I tip my cap to you again. This is becoming too much of a patting on the back session or love fest, but but it's really true. And I'll say publicly, you run good meetings, not easily done in libertarian circles or any others, but you have some humor. You also uh, keep keep people, uh, people going and straightforward. But uh, you did a good job. And you, you mentioned the word financial responsibility. My goodness, uh, there we really stand out from my standpoint, both in our philosophy as well as what we do. And we need to elect more libertarians to more local offices so people can see, whoa, hey, wait a minute. He's in the city council. He's in a Board of Supervisors or Water District or wherever, hey, we really, he wants to balance the budget. She wants to have financial responsibility. Let's put her in the assembly. Let's put her in, in the state office. Uh, let's get more people like that. So I I think that you're seeing that we are getting more libertarians elected around the country to more local offices. Is that a correct observation?
3: I, yes, I'm seeing that. Um, and it's due to some, some strategic initiatives we did. Uh, Going back to 2014, we were first getting started in identifying offices that either were not being challenged or places where um, you could spend a limited amount of money and make a really big impact. And it got to the point where I think in one of the off years, it was probably 2019, uh, which is an odd, odd year. It's not a primary election year. I think the chances in twenty nineteen, if you ran for office as a libertarian of actually winning your seat were close to one in three because we were identifying good races that were at a winnable level, putting the resources into them necessary, and working to support our candidates and give them the information, advice, tools and techniques they need to do a better job than they otherwise would have done. And it it does pay off And, you know, there's a saying, I think it was Zig Ziglar, but I think it's been attributed to a million different people, which is that there's no limit to how much can be done as long as it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And it's very, very important in life and in politics that you should focus on what you're trying to accomplish more so than needing to get the plaque or the reward or the accolade or the title. Um, you know, a lot more gets done that way.
2: Well, I sure agree with that. And I think it was Ronald Reagan, at least, that I heard say that. And whoever did, or you just did, uh, it's certainly correct. We just have a couple of minutes now before our break, Nick. Uh, you have moved your family to New Hampshire. Uh, what caused that? Was it part of the, the Free State Project, or uh, why did you move your—did did that enter into your decision at all?
3: Yeah, it, um, it's a combination. It, back— In the early 2000s, I was an early signer of the Free State Project. I think I was signer 461 out of over 20,000 people now have committed to try and form an intentional community here in one state where more libertarians are here than other places. But it's a combination of that and just quality of life. When you have little kids, you know it's exciting to live in the fifth biggest city in the country, but it's not necessarily the best place to raise your children. If you want them to have, you know, if you want your children to have that access to, you know, all four seasons and good schools and a safe community and be close to their family, that, uh, that quality of life was more available to us here in New Hampshire. And so it was a good combination of things where there's political opportunities, but there's also professional opportunities and family, which is, of course, most important. You're a grounded
2: fellow, Nick, and I wish you Godspeed and thank you for your contributions. Uh, We're going to just ponder those thoughts for a few minutes and then we have a a quick break here about some libertarian issues and then come back and talk again with former chair of the Libertarian Party, National Party, Nick Sarwark, who is now just continuing his quest to live a full life be a great father, be a great husband, and be a great citizen of our great country. So well, there's a lot of greats in there, but uh, one way or the other, stay tuned, and we'll be
0: right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, you shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit judgejimgray.com. That's judgejimgray.com. Now, back to All Rise.
2: Well, welcome back with us and our esteemed guest, uh, Nick Sarwark, the former chair of the Libertarian Party uh, nationally. And uh, 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 this is Judge Gray, you heard a a in effect, another announcement about who we are as Libertarians. Give consideration to joining the Libertarian Party, certainly voting for Libertarian candidates. I say that it sure feels better to vote in favor of a candidate, even for president, than against, oh, I don't want this one, so I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. Uh, Hold your head up high and vote for somebody that you actually favor. But uh, before we come back to Nick, I... At the, my wife's request frequently bring in a little bit of maybe intentional silliness right here and uh, at this part of the program and i i recently heard a medical doctor he was irish wearing a white smock, and he had two beakers in front of him, and one beaker was labeled water, and the other beaker was labeled alcohol, and he said, look, I'm going to take two worms. I'm going to put one worm in the beaker with alcohol, and the other in the one with water, and quickly we saw that the one in the water was still swimming around and squirming, and the one in the alcohol died, and he said, look, there's a message here. The message is, if you do not want to have worms, drink alcohol. Cheers. (laughs) that's the compulsory chuckle by my guests, but you, you came through with that quite well with Nick, but uh, you know, you got to have a little fun in this world, but, but talk about non-fun. Uh, And it's fully legal, but it's my understanding that over the years, uh, we have had numbers of lawsuits brought against us libertarians in various states to keep us off the ballot. And I don't mean to disparage one party, but my understanding is that pretty much the Republicans that have chased us around the country trying to get us off various ballots. And uh, most of the time we're successful. In 2012, when I ran, I think that we lost two states. One was Oklahoma and one was Ohio, if I remember correctly, because of those lawsuits. But is this accurate? Uh, is this happening? And, and what are the results,
3: Nick? Yeah, it, it is accurate. And it actually stems from a couple of things. I, I think one of them is in the post Cold War or Cold War era, there was this concept of conservative and libertarian fusionism that libertarians and conservatives would join common cause against communism. And it, it sold for a while. Um, and it may have been appropriate strategically at the time, but it has caused the Republicans to think that libertarians are some sort of um, alternate Republican or Republicans with silly hats or something that should, by their right, be in their coalition. And it's just not accurate, but what it leads to is Republican parties tend to try to sue or use administrative law or technicalities to remove libertarians from the ballot because their fear is that libertarianism looks better than whatever it is the Republicans pretend to believe in these days. And so if they can just take that, that product off the shelves, then they won't lose market share. And we've gotten really good at fighting back against these dirty tricks. You know, politics is not beanbagged. This is all for keeps. And Democrats do it, too, in places where they are ascendant. Generally, it's just, you know, entrenched interests try and keep other people out. But we watch, you know, Green Party candidates get knocked off the ballot. We watch Kanye West try and get on the ballot in one state and get uh, kicked off the ballot for being 14 seconds late In turning in signatures. And even in my race here in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire, there was a disgruntled Republican lawyer from Nashua who filed a challenge with the state ballot law commission to try and kick me off the ballot on a technicality that, you know, ultimately was not successful. We prevailed at the hearing in Concord. But it's the kind of the kind of thing we have to deal with. And the Libertarian Party is probably the best in the entire country at dealing with these kind of ballot access challenges and shenanigans. And I would tell reporters earlier this year, you know, if Kanye West or Andrew Yang, when he was still running in the primary and having ballot access troubles, if they had just hired libertarians, Uh we know all these dirty tricks. They've been using them on us for decades. We could have really helped them out. And it's an expertise you don't want to have to develop But when you get better at it, they start to respect you more. And that's what we're starting to see is they're not trying some of the the sillier tricks anymore with us because they know that we'll fight back.
2: Of course, it's expensive also, and we don't have the funds, but, but we have been successful in fending these off. These people have every right to bring lawsuits. We don't complain about that, but uh, you'd think a little more discretion. In a lot of ways, I suppose it's flattering if they think that we're going to take market share like you call it. But uh, you were you ran two years ago for mayor of Phoenix. Uh, you were not kicked off the ballot there. Uh, what, what was that like? Uh, what, was, what were the uppers and the downers as to running uh, – you, you were It's a non-partisan office, but people knew you were libertarian. Uh, what were the uppers and downers in that race, Nick?
3: You know, the best part of that race was going out and meeting people in the neighborhoods in their community. Phoenix is its fifth-biggest city in the country by population, but it's also one of the largest cities in the country geographically, it's over 500 square miles of inside the city limits. And there are neighborhoods and there are communities there that just get ignored or they get lip service every few years when, you know, people are running for election. And then I went to one community debate in uh, South Phoenix and is in the Hispanic community. And the lady said, you know, they say that we need sidewalks here. We need sidewalks. Um, they don't even have sidewalks on some of the streets. And she came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, we had a debate like this a few years back, the last time they ran for mayor, and they promised us the sidewalks then, too. Mm -hmm. And they still didn't have the sidewalks. And as far as I know, they still don't have sidewalks in that neighborhood because, you know, politicians will go into these neighborhoods and promise anything in order to get their power, but they're not really in it for the people. And I think that's going to be a breakthrough for more candidates who are willing, you know, whether they're libertarian or not, are willing to really be authentic and actually try and live up to that ideal of public service. And so the people who were who were doing that in the community that you got to meet, that was probably the best part about it. The toughest part was, you know, some of the realities of politics. You would go to things at the Chamber of Commerce or, you know, some of the business community or community groups. And people would privately come up to you and say, man, you, you have the best answers in the debate, and your policies really make sense, and I'd really be happy if you were the mayor, but then the the Associated Political Action Committee or the official endorsement would come down, and they'd go for one of the establishment people that you know they had talked to you about, that person's really not the smartest or they're not the best at it, but we think they're going to win, and we need to try and get in well with the people who are going to be in power. And that's just an unfortunate place that our politics is at, is that people are supporting what they don't want because they're afraid that if they don't, there'll be some negative repercussion. And I always tell people, if you vote for what you don't want because you're afraid that the other guy might be worse, the best possible outcome you can get, the absolute best case scenario is you're going to get somebody you don't want, and you're going to have lent your voice to them. Sure.
2: Yes, well, it's. If, I tried to say it as well, that if you try to take the lesser of two evils, you still get evil. But I, I, I I'm. A, it's no secret I'm going to vote for Dr. Joe Jorgensen for president. I'm going to vote affirmatively in favor of her. Uh, I couldn't vote for either of the other two main party candidates for the reasons you mentioned. You mentioned a word, uh, debate. Uh, it's one of the I don't use this very often, un-American things that we have visited upon ourselves by not allowing third parties in these presidential debates. Uh, they're they're ongoing now. Uh, libertarian candidate has not been invited. Why? Because the so-called Commission on Presidential Debates is completely controlled by Republicans and Democrats, and they are absolutely determined not to bring in a third voice. Uh, we would, of course, argue and Governor Gary Johnson and I brought a lawsuit against the Commission on Presidential Debates back in 2012, uh, saying that any political party that's on enough ballots in enough states technically to win the presidency should have their voices heard. And it's not easy to get on the ballot in any state, much less enough to technically win. You were in the debates in Phoenix. Did it make any difference?
3: It did. It made quite a bit of difference being in the debate because— when you put people on the record, you actually get some answers out of them, and people get to see whether or not they stand for something and whether or not they're going to make promises. And I think one of the problems that we have in our country right now is we are allowing the gatekeepers in uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates or some media outlets or polling firms to decide how to shape our reality and it's not something that they should necessarily have the power to do if if I get a sample ballot or the ballots that went out to overseas and military voters here in New Hampshire there will be three candidates on the ballot for president um, you know there'll be a Republican there will be a Democrat and there will be dr. Joe Jorgensen the good candidate now, those are the three candidates that are going to be on the ballot And we have pollsters in this country that will go and and give a poll and ask, will you vote for the Republican or will you vote for the Democrat? And if you're polling a question that is different from what the voter is going to see, if you are deciding as a debate organizer, I will not allow this candidate in because I don't think they're serious and I get to determine whether or not the people get to hear from somebody that will be available to them on the ballot, that's not good for our democracy. That's not good for trying to find the truth of what would be the best way to run this country. And I think it's going to come down to how long do we allow these gatekeepers to have legitimacy? You know, at what point do we just tell the Commission on Presidential Debates, we don't actually care what you're doing with this bipartisan campaign commercial. It's not relevant to us. You have stopped listening to your customers, and we just shut them off.
2: Well, I live in Orange County, California, and in 2012, in our lawsuit, I had Mr. Democrat tell me privately, you should have your voices heard. You should be in the debates. It's un-American. I wouldn't vote for you, Jim, but you should have your voice heard. And I had Mr. Republican say the same thing. He was actually in the Nixon administration, say exactly the same thing, Nick, when you were with us on August the 9th, 2019, on a prior broadcast, uh, you said that you were involved in all of the debates running for the mayor of Phoenix, except for, I think, the last one, because you had another commitment. And then your supporters said that debate was totally different because when Nick Sarwark was a part of the debate, you made the other candidates focus on issues that they otherwise would not do, and when the one you were not in, they were able to skate it. They were able to skirt those various issues. Was that your understanding as well? Because I think it's it would certainly be true with these presidential debates.
3: Yes. It, so when people are running for public office, You want to find contrast against your opponents, but if you both have a bad position on whatever it is, let's say you both support the war on drugs because you're foolish and you don't understand it's bad for humanity, if a Republican and a Democrat who both support the war on drugs are in a debate, they will never talk about the drug war because there's no place where they can find contrast. It's an embarrassment to both of them. And what bringing a libertarian into the debate does is it allows there to be a voice that will point out that those two candidates both have a bad position on this issue, and I have a good one. And so the one debate when I was in Texas speaking at uh, Tribune Fest in Austin, the one debate I wasn't there, they didn't talk about the problems with the public transit system in Phoenix. And they didn't talk about the tax breaks that they gave to big developers to put up high-rises downtown while, you know, working families were still struggling under a property tax burden. They didn't want to talk about those things because everybody else on the stage was bad on that position or bad on that issue. And by me not being there, no one else brought it up.
2: That's that's accurate, and it would be true with regard to national politics as well. I can tell you when I ran for— U.S. Senate from California in 2004, I had maybe five to six to seven big-time members of the media say, well, Judge Gray, you are the best candidate running, but they wouldn't even interview me. Just like you had said before, uh, they thought I was the best candidate, most aware of the issues, more like them, but they wouldn't even on their media even even have an interview with me. It's kind of the fact of life, and uh, who says fundamental fairness has any place in our politics today? But You um, are running now as a candidate, uh, as a libertarian for county attorney in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire. Uh, What are your issues there? What are your selling issues? Why should I vote for you, Mr. Sarwark?
3: So, the primary reason you should vote for me if you live in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire, to be the next county attorney is the experience. I have more criminal trial experience than all of my opponents put together. Um, I've handled hundreds of felony cases. I've tried over 35 cases to a jury. And that experience and the professionalism built over a career, both in the public sector, running a small business in Phoenix, and, you know, leading a political party, provides a level of professionalism and leadership that can help Hillsborough County and the Hillsborough County Attorney's Office Be an example to look up to for the other counties in New Hampshire. Um, Be the the guiding star for what prosecution should look like. And do it efficiently and effectively. You know, one of the things you learn when you have to sign the front of a paycheck is the importance of making sure that costs are controlled, that money is spent uh, effectively, And that when you're making improvements in how an office is run, you're doing them with a look towards long-term efficiency, because at the end of the day, it's the taxpayers' dollars that are spent. And the people of New Hampshire, in the Granite State, they really expect you to be efficient with their dollars. And I think my experience provides an advantage for young prosecutors coming up and will set a tone where it's an office focused on priorities, where violent and property crime are dealt with very seriously, and we focus on the things that make Hillsborough County a safe and great place to live.
2: So this is the equivalent of what I would call a district attorney. You
3: are the prosecutor
2: for the county in New Hampshire?
3: Correct. Um, So in Hillsborough County, uh, it's two cities, Nashua and Manchester, and then 29 towns, which are smaller municipalities, And the Hillsborough County attorney handles um, high misdemeanor and felony level prosecutions for that entire county at the two courthouses in the county, Uh, manages a staff of roughly 20 prosecuting attorneys, um, and then various investigators and support staff.
2: When I was a trial court judge, uh, I told people publicly that we had two mandates. We had two obligations as a judge. The first was to do justice under the facts and the law and the ethics of our profession. And the second was equally important, and that was to have anyone who cares believe justice was being done. When I would talk with prosecutors, I say, you have an absolute mandate. And Mr. Sarwak, I'm going to ask if you agree with this. I anticipate you do. And your mandate is to do the right thing for the right reason under the law every time. That's your mandate. Uh, I assume that you're going to tell your prosecutors exactly that when you're elected?
3: Absolutely. The, The key in being a successful and effective prosecutor is that you are to seek justice. And seeking justice is not the same as seeking a conviction. Sometimes justice is done through an alternate resolution. Sometimes justice is done through a dismissal because justice requires it. Sometimes justice is done through a hard prosecution all the way through trial in an attempt to get the harshest sentence possible because of the nature of the crime. But, you know, a, a prosecuting attorney in an office that I'm running will always be looking at their ethical obligations and that, that overarching need to seek justice and do the right thing. And when I was taught coming up, you know, legal ethics is a complicated subject and there are people that specialize in it but my office man or my office head um, in Arapahoe County told us that if you if you get a feeling in the pit of your stomach that maybe this isn't the right thing to do that's the most important legal ethical rule that exists when you get that feeling you don't do that thing and that's what keeps you on the right side of the line and that's the kind of tone and standard of practice I think is necessary with all of the turmoil and change and different currents in the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform that are coming down, we need to have prosecutors that are grounded in that ethical vision of doing the right thing and never having that feeling in your stomach that maybe this isn't the right thing to do.
2: I'm going to make a political statement here. Uh, we are in an election campaign. And my view, my opinion of Senator Kamala Harris here of California, now running for vice president as a Democrat, is not good with regard to her political, excuse me, her prosecutorial background. It's my understanding, although I'm not from San Francisco. But when she was the district attorney in San Francisco, she did a lot of prosecutions or non prosecutions for political reasons. And the same thing happened when she was attorney general. And I hold that against her. Uh, I'm just saying that now. Uh, I will say, Nick, that uh, a prosecutor, you can do more for people than a defense attorney can. You, I know you've been a public defender and you've seen this, but a prosecutor can actually keep people from being prosecuted inappropriately. A prosecutor can only seek a misdemeanor instead of a felony if that's more appropriate. So I think that's what you are saying, uh, and it's a very important place in our society today. Uh, I assume that that's what you said in a different word. That's,
3: that's exactly the the philosophy that I want to bring to the job. And one of the, the catalysts in seeking this office and stepping up to serve was a conversation I had with not the previous San Francisco district attorney, but the current one, uh, Chesa Boudin, who um, pretty famously or infamously, depending, uh, was cross-endorsed in his election by both the Democratic Socialists and the Libertarian Parties of San Francisco. Because on criminal justice matters, there's a lot of overlap, Um, maybe not so much on economic things. But he has really brought to that office this idea that you want to look at the root causes of why people are getting involved in the criminal justice system, and that sometimes, you know, there's a way to handle a case where the punishment will still be applied, but that person isn't going to be back into the legal system because you've gotten to either the mental health or substance abuse or other factors that led them down the wrong path in the first place. And that's a lot cheaper in the long run than it is to just lock people up, let them out, prosecute them again, and wash, rinse, repeat.
2: Well, the purpose of the criminal justice system is to reduce crime. And what you said will focus on the real issue that the crime was being perpetrated in the first place. Look, if you're drug addicted, let's assess that addiction so that you don't have to burglarize my house or my car in order to get money to buy your drugs. I mean, that's that's the deal. We're also in the responsibility business, of course. But but uh, mm-hmm. I, I can tell you, Nick, that I've already contributed to your campaign because I know you and know you would be effective and I'm proud of you. Tell other people that are listening if they wish more information about Nick Sarwark, or what you're campaign is, who you are, and how they can support you. How can they get more information?
3: The best place to get more information on the campaign is at the campaign website, sarwarkforthepeople.com. That's sarwarkfor the And that has links to social media, uh, places where you can contribute. Uh, the maximum individual contribution in New Hampshire is $5,000. You can't get more than that. Um, But every amount helps in getting us the exposure that's necessary. You know, libertarians run for offices and do very well in the office. But as far as what it costs to win the office, uh, someone I trust here in politics in New Hampshire told me, you'll spend about three times as much as a Republican or Democrat would because it is not a system that's built for us to win. But we're going to go ahead and win anyway.
2: Indeed so. We just have just a couple of minutes left, Nick. A huge issue from my standpoint is school choice that is empowering parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent for the education of their children. And I asked the question, who's in a better position to understand what the best schooling would be for a child, the parents or the government? And no one has ever said it's the government. It's always the parents. What is going on in New Hampshire with regard to school choice
3: today? We're making great strides in dealing with some of the um, constitutional prohibitions on any support for religious schools that were put forth, uh, you know, back in the 1900s in a somewhat bigoted way. We're trying to unravel those. And the Free State Project and some of the school choice movement people have really made New Hampshire a good laboratory for how can you provide educational options for everybody So everyone gets better schooling without that kind of uh, zero-sum conflict where public schools versus school choice is some sort of death struggle. It, It actually makes every schooling option better when there are more schooling options. And, you know, what we're seeing here is that when a small community of people is really engaged, you can make some big changes in adding scholarship programs, And school choice, even in a place like New England, where the public school system is pretty well entrenched and pretty popular. Sure.
2: Well, Nick, I wish you Godspeed. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you were doing. And candidly, thank you for what you will do in the future. Appreciate your being back with us again on All Rise with, again, the understanding if you employ these, these virtues, these values, these principles that Nick Sarwark and I have been discussing, we will all rise together. We do care about people. And that's what we talk about here on All Rise. And that's what we do. Quality of life. We care about people. So, Nick, thank you. We'll do this again, I hope. And please stay in contact. Thank you for being with us. And for you in the audience, if you wish to hear this again, you can hear it on demand anytime when it's broadcast uh, on the 16th of October, 2020. Just remember that. And any other broadcast as well. But join us again next week. We'll have another interesting guest. And in the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying, as I always do when we sign off, life is good. Why do I say that? Because it truly is. Take care.